What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris, and today I have another conversation with a fantastic author by the name of Jonah Lehrer. So his book, Mystery, actually just dropped today, August 17th, the time that I'm releasing this podcast, but I got an early copy of it. We recorded this a, uh, a few weeks ago, so great news is you can go check out the description and grab yourself a copy of this book if you think this conversation is interesting, which I think you will, because we dive into so many cool, interesting topics, like why we are like designed to be drawn for mystery. Uh, we, we talk about some stuff like, like why, why do we go to magic shows? Why do we pay someone basically to lie to us. Uh, we talk about why people are drawn to art, how mystery helps uh, kids learn, how it helps us learn, and how it can make us, you know, move forward in like, you know, our jobs or projects that we're working on. And we talk about like, I think this was like one of my favorite parts, but we talk about why spoilers aren't even like that big of a deal and we still watch the stuff anyways and how that plays into mystery. So uh, I had a blast talking to Jonah. He's a cool guy. So so I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, and yeah, make sure you check out the description, grab a copy of his book. And while you're down there, make sure you follow me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. There's a few books being launched this week. I have episodes for you each day this week about brand new books. So make sure that you stay tuned. All right, but anyways, this conversation is awesome and I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jonah Lehrer. Good morning, Jonah. Thank you for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And we're here to talk about your brand new book that's coming out called Mystery. And, and I was fortunate enough to get an advanced copy of it. So the first thing that I, I just like to discuss is like what inspired you to write a book about mystery and as i'm saying that it, that's kind of vague like like can you explain what the book's kind of about too for those who haven't read it yet i mean to be honest i should have a very intellectual and pretentious answer for why i was interested <laughs> in mystery but but it really began with watching my then three-year-old son watch youtube videos on the kids youtube app and mm. there was this there was this one morning when he discovered i don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of being acquainted with ryan's toy review i i know of ryan yes for a while he was you know the most subscribed youtube channel is now ubiquitous and walmart and target he's got his line but there's this video it's the 34th video they made mm -hmm. and it features what's now known as a surprise egg okay. and his parents i mean the the IP on surprise eggs is encodified, but his parents were one of the first people to really celebrate surprise eggs and build them into almost every video. Mm -hmm. And in this video, they built him this giant paper mache. They wake him up and there's this giant paper mache egg, like bigger than Ryan himself, yeah. full of cars and toys and, you know, Hot Wheels and Pixar figurines and Disney collectibles and all the rest. And the entire video, it's seven minutes long, is him just, reaching into the surprise egg after he breaks it open and taking out one toy after another. <laughs> and my son would just watch this video over and over and over.
over again to the extent that he had every toy, the order of the order in which every toy is removed from the surprise egg he had it memorized. Yeah. And, and then he just went from this to the next surprise egg and he got in this surprise egg loop and the algorithm, the way the YouTube kids algorithm works is it it's brutally efficient. So it'll serve you up exactly mm-hmm. what you want to watch. So it would just serve up one surprise egg after another. And I got so interested watching him watch these videos what what was it about the surprise egg trope, the surprise egg kind of gimmick that little kids found so addictive? Because now you go on YouTube and there are, you know, a billion different surprise egg videos. You want to see anything get pulled out of an egg, a paper mache egg. <laughs> yeah. And, and that got me interested in the question of mystery. So that, that really was my entry point is watching my son watch surprise egg videos on YouTube. Because I think what it comes down to is for, for a three-year-old, a uh, surprise egg is a hint of mystery. It's mm-hmm. what's going to happen next. It's what psychologists and creators call a mystery box. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is the same technique you see in Star Wars. It's the same technique you see when Steve Jobs first introduced the iPhone. And he's got this great teaser moment where he just taps his pocket. And he says, I know you want to see this, but not yet. Yeah, uh, That's a surprise egg. Um, And so once I started thinking about the lure of mystery, not just in the context of Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes and Law and Order, I became really interested in this this hook of culture that really is everywhere Mm -hmm. and and started thinking about what are all the different ways that the best artists and creators use mystery to keep us engaged. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, no, that was a perfect summary. Because yeah, you talk you talk about Ryan's toy review and all that in the book. But yeah, you dive into like TV shows and movies and books and and so many things and like how teachers are using it and magicians. Like it goes over all of that stuff. So so did you kind of find that you know while while kind of like uh, observing your son that this is something kind of like innate, like we're kind of wired to enjoy mystery. Yeah, so you definitely see that with kids, right? Kids are inherently curious and every parent has their own exasperating story of the time the kid wouldn't stop asking questions about the moon or chickens mm-hmm. or surprise eggs. Um, yeah. and, and that is really their hardwired like that's because they have to learn. They've got to learn about how the universe works. They've got to learn about gravity and living things and you know everything we take for granted, they had to really learn. So that's where their inherent curiosity and their interest in mystery comes about. So you can do experiments with six-week-old babies, and what you'll find is that they're drawn to novelty. They will stare longer at the unfamiliar Mm -hmm. and strange, at the mysterious, than they will at something that they know. Um, so, So little kids especially are acutely sensitive to mystery and the unknown and the unknowable and the perplexing. Um... And you know, I think as we grow older, we start to take this curiosity, this, this impulse and mystery for granted. And I think it really is, that's why I talk a lot about art and how artists use the hook mm. of mystery, because I think that that is where we're reminded of the power of mystery. I think in the 21st century, sadly, we have a lot of these social networks, a lot of the news feeds we rely on that that have been programmed to serve up more of what we already know and believe. So mm-hmm. in a sense, they're counter-programming mystery. It's the opposite of mystery. They serve up confirmation bias. They tell us we're right, that, that, yeah. that there's no complexity and confusion. And, you know, I think that's where art comes in. I think 
you know, even Law and Order is reminding us that the reason we love that show or the reason we love reading the latest Michael Connelly or the latest pulp detective novel is because we don't know what's going to happen. That's what makes it interesting. And so I think art kind of, especially in the 21st century, has this very important job of working against all these other platforms and systems that encourages that encourage us to think we know more than we actually do. Yeah, yeah. And so like on art, so I'm not like an art dude, right? Like I don't, you know, like when I look at art, I'm like, uh, okay, I don't really get it. Like I'll, I'll never understand, you know, how people can go and like just sit there and like amuse, not a museum. Well, yeah, I guess a museum and just stare at it. But like you kind of explain this in the book, like part of it is that mystery of like how they do this, right? And that's kind of what grabs our attention. And and I, I was kind of like, you know, it broadened my view a little bit because, you know, even though I'm not into like paintings and, you know, sculptures and stuff like that, there's other things that I'm really interested in. And I can see how that kind of relates. So like, did you see any like uh, throughout your research, like certain types of art? And like when we're talking art, like I know you talk about like paintings and stuff like that, but you also dive into music or like movies is where does that come in for like the, the how they do it affect, like kind of like the yeah. awe of it all, you know? Yeah, so there are a lot of different techniques that artists and creators more generally, whether it's, you know, someone creating an ad or someone creating a new gadget that that they use to hook us with mystery. And Mm -hmm. one of the tricks they use is the how the hell did he do it or she do it, (laughs) which, you know, you I think you see most precisely with magic. Right. Why? Why are we drawn to magic? Why do we? pay good money and buy tickets to have someone trick us to essentially lie to us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's because it's, there's something deeply thrilling about not knowing how someone did something, right? That is the mystery of how the hell did he or she do it. Mm-hmm. So I think magicians use this technique the most, but it's a technique that painters use as well. And you've seen through the history of painting as they increasingly try to get more and more realistic, really kind of trying to create a painting that even before there was photography felt like a photograph, right? That felt Mm -hmm. like real life, whether it's the use of perspective um, or just different kinds of paint technique to really capture the reflections of light. Um, And I think part of the reason you see this repeated again and again in the history of painting is because painters know that part of the appeal is how the hell did he or she do it? How do they create a painting that realistic? How do they create a painting that captures three dimensions on a two-dimensional surface? Mm-hmm. So in a sense, they're, they're, they're trying to perform a magic trick in front of our very eyes. And you know, I think you see this most clearly uh, you know, in terms of realism, but I think you also see it you know, in terms of abstract expressionism where a guy like Mark Rothko is creating a canvas just full of color fields. Mm -hmm. And yet part of the mystery there is why do these colors, this very particular arrangement of color blocks, why does it make us feel something? Where does this feeling come from? So they're also in a sense playing with mystery, but, but that is a recurring theme, I think in the history of the visual arts where like a magician, they're trying to wow us and leave us with these feelings of awe just because we don't know how they could have possibly done this. The craft itself is so impressive Mm. that it becomes a source of mystery. 
Yeah. Yeah. And when I think about it, like the art that does impress me, like I'm, I'm one of those guys where like uh, whenever they do like those events where they do like 3D, like chalk drawings. Right. Yeah. And it looks like there's like a canyon on the sidewalk. <laughs> you know, I could stare at that because, you know, the way they just like work the angles and stuff to create this kind of optical mm-hmm. illusion or some of the 3D art that, that people make. Like, I don't know if you ever see where they like hang a bunch of stuff on strings. Oh. And you kind oh, of like unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's exactly. I mean, that's a magic tricks straight up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of what I wanted to get across in this book too is that, you know, I think sometimes people are intimidated by art, difficult art, whether it's poetry or Shakespeare or Rothko is because they assume there is an answer they're missing, right? They assume because they can't figure it out, they're getting something wrong. And I think what I wanted to get across in this book was that it's actually the opposite. The art works because nobody understands it. We Mm. keep reading Hamlet because it's, he's still a mystery. We keep returning to Rothko because nobody in the entire universe will ever make sense of this, will ever be able to really explain where our feelings come from. So that is the power of art. It's not that you're somehow missing out on the answer. It's that there is no answer. And they hook us with these questions that never get old. Yeah. And that that's interesting. Like one of the reasons I, I love the book and it like drew me in because of this idea of like mystery, because uh, I'm always like self-analyzing a- along with like looking at human behavior and I'm just mm-hmm. forever curious, right? Like I read an insane amount of books. I just find a subject. I'm like, oh, that, that seems interesting. And I'll just start reading and reading and reading and reading. Right. And so, so where, where do you think that balance comes in? Because you like, there's some that we, we don't know and we'll never figure out, but there is some satisfaction. Like when I'm trying to learn about a subject and I'm trying to understand human behavior, like I'll, I'll read books on like moral philosophy and psychology and economics and all these things. And I find some of those answers. So where's that balance between like satisfying, like, okay, now I know. Yeah. And then other stuff that's still kind of left up in the air, do you think? It's such a great question. I actually think art provides some very interesting answers when you really look at how the best artists hook us. They don't throw up complete noise. Mm-hmm. Instead, they take patterns and deviate them, twist them, violate our expectations in very precise ways so that it's it's not completely confusing, right? No one's going to want to listen to a piece mm. of music or look at a work of art that makes no sense at all. There has to be some order, some structure we can hold on to. And yet at the same time, they can't give us something completely predictable, right? They can't give us something we fully understand because that's boring, that's tedious. No one's gonna stay interested in that. So they have to kind of bring us in. And then once we're engaged, that's when they give us the mystery. And I think the same thing applies to intellectual curiosity throughout, right? Mm. You, you don't wanna, you're not gonna be drawn to a book that, that just throws up one mystery after another. It gives you no answers. It gives you no structure that doesn't plug into the bodies of knowledge you already have. And yet at the same time, I think the best books, regardless of genre, they also leave you with a sense of mystery, a sense that there are more questions, a sense that, and this is true even of science books that that at least my favorite ones, they, they really don't pretend to give you all the answers. They never yeah. pretend it's solved. Instead, they say we're making progress isn't this stuff, isn't this new research fascinating? Yet at the same time, they remind us how much remains to be understood. And I think that balance, finding that balance is really a general theme of the best culture. Yeah, no, it, it's crazy just even having this conversation because I'm thinking about like my, like my, my 
strange well what i see strange like love of like philosophy right like when i when i set down a philosophy book or even just finishing a chapter i walk away with a bunch of questions right they don't have these solid answers like when we're talking about morals and ethics and you know all these other things right um like i i enjoy that i enjoy just being able to kind of sit there and like, hey, we don't know the exact answer, but the same thing with science. You know, I've, I've brought on a lot of authors on here who talk about, you know, science and debunking conspiracies and all these other things. And one of the things about science is it's it's moving forward, it's moving along. And, and you never know when there's kind of this like surprising uh, study that's gonna come out or anything like that. And, and I guess that's a good segue into my next question. I'm from Vegas and you talk a bit about like slot machines. <laughs> <laughs> and stuff like that. So, so can you talk about that kind of like mystery and that surprise? And maybe it even like kind of goes to like that, you know, Ryan's like little like egg thing sure, too. Yeah. Like, like what, what's, what hooks us into this, right? Like what, what is it about those kind of things? Yeah. I mean, slot machines are a dark art. And I think <laughs> if you really want to understand culture at its most ruthlessly efficient, you always got to look at Vegas, right? Cause yeah. Vegas, they know how their brain works in a very <laughs> practical and effective way. And I think you look at a slot machine, it is, it is perhaps, you know, as I said, the most ruthless mystery vehicle we have. Mm -hmm. um, they have, they have fine tuned it in all sorts of ways so that the reason we stay hooked is because we don't know what's going to happen. In particular, I talk about how in the late 1980s, they started using the near miss effect where mm they programmed the reel. So they actually weren't fully random so that people were much more likely to end up on reels and the slot machine where it was close to a hit. It wasn't a complete near miss. You didn't have like a, a cherry, a star and a comet. You had two cherries and a star and maybe the third cherry was, you could just catch the bottom of it. So it was yeah. a near miss. So you felt like you almost won. And it turns out that is incredibly alluring for the reasons we just discussed that if you just gave people complete chaos mm -hmm. and they didn't have those near misses, the game is less exciting. It's less intoxicating. You're more likely to take your coins and walk away. Whereas if you keep delivering people near misses, they stay hooked, right? Cause the brain is this tantalizing pattern that they're that's almost within reach. They feel mm -hmm. like, Oh, if I just put in another quarter, if I just swipe <laughs> my card again, the next time I'll get those three cherries. And so it's really, that's really when slot machines went to the next level is when casinos started programming these near misses. Yeah. Uh, and it's of course, like most things in casinos, a little ethically dubious because <laughs> you are in a sense distorting people's perception of randomness. Mm. You're suggesting the game is less random than it actually is and they're getting closer to winning than they actually are. But that's, that's why slot machines have become the cash cows of casinos because they really program in these near miss effects. And then of course, once you start playing with reels and they're not completely random, but are actually you know, a form of entertainment itself, mm -hmm. then you can do all sorts of other things where you can have more reels so people have a sense that they have got a better chance of winning even though they actually don't. So you're giving people a very distorted sense of the odds Mm -hmm. which plays with their sense of mystery and helps explain why slot machines are, you know, tragically can be so deeply addictive for a lot of people. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's nuts. Like, I don't know if it's because I live in Las Vegas or if it's because I'm a recovering drug addict uh, or what, or maybe it's a combination of all these things. But like, I got really, when I got sober in 2012, I got really interested. I'm like, why, why do some people become hooked, whether it's drugs, alcohol, gambling, or whatever. And I started learning about behaviorism from like BF Skinner and then like also the dopamine systems <laughs> yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, there, there's so many things where, where you start to see it everywhere, right? Like we're talking about slot machines right now, but that's why social media has become so addictive, hasn't it? Like whenever you refresh your feed, you don't know how many likes you're gonna get. You don't know how many shares, retweets, whatever it is, that's, that's kind of what Silicon Valley has, has been doing. And I can't remember if you touched on this in the book, but, but is this how like, businesses are starting to like lean and take advantage of our our sense of you know wanting mystery and surprise and all that random reinforcement is no joke skinner was really <laughs> onto something yeah uh, i think it's in part because it delivers this jolt of mystery um i mean i talk in the book a little bit about dopamine and the dopaminergic system and in particular the way our brain is wired is that you are very sensitive to what scientists call prediction errors mm. so your brain is always making predictions. We're always making maps of the world of what's going to happen next. That's how we anticipate everything. Um, but what's so interesting is that what, what makes your brain most excited, what most turns on these dopamine neurons is not the predictable reward. That gets boring really, really fast. Yep. Because from your brain's perspective, there's nothing new to learn. You know what's going to happen. So enjoy the reward, but we're not going to spend a lot of attention on it because you've already figured it out. Instead, what the brain really invests in, what it's tuned to respond to are these so-called prediction errors when something unexpected happens. Mm -hmm. um, and from the brain's perspective, that's because this is where the learning happens, right? It's a system you haven't quite figured mm. out. It's a system you know well enough to be able to make predictions about, but that you can't predict actually the next event. Um, so it's the surprising reward, positive or negative. That's what really grabs our attention. And I do think social media uh, and, and just the internet more generally, all these screens we carry around. I think even if they don't use the language of neuroscience, use the language of prediction errors, I think they're very plugged into it. Uh, I mm -hmm. think through all their testing and optimization, I think they've stumbled upon uh, these systems and programs that, that are very deft at keeping the brain engaged for long periods of time um, mm -hmm. through surprising twists. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a constantly updating newsfeed that's giving us quick, surprising hits to, mm -hmm. you know, when you watch a streaming channel, I think streaming networks, whether it's Netflix or Disney Plus, the reason they end these shows with hooks, with, with the unknowns, with surprising cliffhangers is because that's what brings us back to the next time. We want that prediction error and then we want to solve it. We want to resolve it. Mm -hmm. So I do think as culture goes digital and it becomes easier to, to test our attention and to measure it, I think you are seeing a lot of places really optimize around how the brain works around these prediction errors in the same way, you know, Vegas did. Um, yeah. I think you also see it in sports. I think, you know, I talk briefly in the book oh, about yeah. how the history of baseball is largely an attempt to constrain the talent of pitchers because when pitchers get too talented, when they dominate the game, it becomes really boring. Mm -hmm. um, you know, no one wants to go to a shutout if it's happening every game. Uh, we want to see hits because those are surprising and they're fun. 
and and that's what the game is about and so the history of baseball starting with the rule change of 1893 where they moved back the pitcher's mound has really been about constraining the talent of pitchers so there's more mystery in the game so there's more uncertainty uh mm-hmm. what a scientist called nicholas christenfeld calls optimal discrepancy and he's the scientist who i talk to a lot about sports he's written some great papers on the psychology mm-hmm. of sports uh and you see that now in the news you know major league baseball is really trying to rein in the use of sticky substances on pitchers' hands because it allowed pitchers to increase their spin rates and become a little bit too effective. So the game became less mysterious. Um, so, I, so you're always looking at culture. I think culture is always responding to what people want, obviously. Uh, it's an attention economy. Uh, but I think now, now it's really an attention economy. And I think these new forms of measuring attention will allow places, whether it's Facebook or Netflix, uh, you know, or the next place that sucks up our eyeballs to really optimize for these, for our interest in prediction errors. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting too. like, uh, just kind of thinking of like the evolutionary psychology about it. Like if it's predictable, it's boring. And like, you know, our brains probably evolved to want to learn, right. That's how we survive when we yeah. learn about new things. So it makes sense that that's kind of, kind of wired in there. And, you know, I, I'm curious your your thoughts about this, especially after, you know, doing all this research for the book. Like, I, you know, I've, I've been a social media guy, you know, since social media started. And, you know, I have a YouTube channel and, you know, I'm on uh, the different apps and everything. But since I love to learn, like, I, I know about all these things, right? Like, I know about how they try to do those kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, those random rewards and how they keep us hooked and all that kind of stuff. But like, there's, you know, I've even had an authors on here who write about how social media is trying to keep you hooked and all these other things. So like, I'm curious, like what your thoughts are just, you know, at, even as a parent, right? Like, should we, you know, some people are like, delete all your social media and, you know, other others, it's like, okay, I know how it works. So now I can kind of gauge my usage and know what it's doing to me. So like, what are your kind of thoughts on, on these companies and social media using, prediction errors and stuff like that to keep us hooked should we learn about it should we get rid of it or what i mean i will say as a parent the one app i have removed from my kids tablets (laughs) is the youtube kids app i I just found their algorithm (laughs) it was just honestly it was too good the algorithm was too effective it was it was too good a babysitter and and my kids would just get stuck in these algorithmic cul-de-sacs where whether it was surprise (laughs) eggs or my daughter got my youngest got very into uh, Korean anime cooking videos. And oh, so yeah. the YouTube kids algorithm just kept serving them up and she, and she was, she was hooked. Uh, and, you know, it, it takes their curiosity, which is so wide and broad and makes it very narrow and specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's just what the algorithm is really good at. But I think for a three-year-old, there are better places to invest their attention than in surprise eggs running on a loop on their tablet. <laughs> so, so that was, that was my own decision. Um, but, uh, but um, you know, more generally, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is to remind people that mystery is one of the great attractors mystery is one of the things we love and Mm -hmm. if you really want to make something that lasts it has to involve the mysterious the numinous the ambiguous the unknown Mm -hmm. um that is what great culture is made out of um and you know for me i think the real danger is not that facebook somehow 
optimizes for prediction errors. In a sense, I think it's the opposite because I because I do think mm-hmm. there are these competing impulses in the brain. On the one hand, we are inherently curious for the reasons you described about we evolved to be interested in the novel and these prediction errors. We evolved to to kind of be drawn to what we don't yet fully understand. Uh, this is also why predictable pleasures get boring really fast. So, mm-hmm. you know, your new iPhone is exciting for about a week. Your new sweater is exciting for the first couple of times you wear it. And then it gets old, right? It ceases to be a novel reward becomes a very predictable reward. And so we get bored very, very, very fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet at the same time, you also see the pleasure in knowing we're right. The pleasure in certainty, mm-hmm. the 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 comfort of being confident that our worldview is correct. And I think the real danger, as I see it, of social media is not that they encourage more prediction errors. I I wish they encourage even more. It's that they really <laughs> double down on confirmation bias, yeah. um, on, on feeding people information that feels right to them, that mm. confirms what they already believe. Uh, and so to me, I, you know, I wanted to remind in my own very, very little way, uh, that that Facebook, there's another way of engaging people. Um, there's another way of holding people's attention and it doesn't just involve giving them information that confirms what they believe. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting too because like I, I've brought on like conspiracy debunkers and stuff like that and skeptics and, and yeah, it almost feels like with social media and putting us in our bubbles. And even like you mentioned, like the algorithms and stuff, like I come from YouTube and I know how those algorithms can just get people sucked in, but it's almost like there's a balance. Like, like, for example, if, you know, you believe in, you know, the COVID conspiracies or election fraud or whatever like that, you might have this, like this kind of itch, like, I feel like something's wrong and something's going on. So there's a little bit of mystery, but then it can play into your confirmation bias. So it's almost like a a one-two punch. So you're like, oh, I thought something was wrong with this, you know? So, but you're getting served the answers that you you wish you believed were true and and stuff like that. Yeah. Does that kind of sound- No, no, no. I think that's beautifully put. I think that's exactly right. Um, And I, you know, I wish instead of serving up information that confirms what we already believe, it really tried to complicate our worldviews and try to surprise <laughs> us. You know, where's the sense of surprise? Yeah. Um, you know, and and this isn't just a technique used by Shakespeare and hoity-toity culture. I mean, it, you look at Law and Order. It's like if if done well, the formula really works. There's a reason Law and Order is on somewhere in the world every hour of every day. It's because yeah. that formula that we're going to surprise you in act three formula. We're going to give you a twist that you never saw coming. Uh, even, you know, if you're an avid law and order watcher, you know, it's a formula. You've seen this happen before. And yet the surprise still works. Uh, the mystery still pops. Um, and so I wish that social networks would adopt more of the law and order model and less of the, we're going to tell you your right model. Just l- somehow, somehow in the internet, which should be this great giant, Borgesian library full of surprises. Instead, it's become the super predictable thing that wants to become <laughs> even more predictable. Um, so I want to bring some weirdness back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that's that's a perfect segue to that you brought up Law and Order because that's where I'm wondering uh, about. Like you, you talk about this in the book, and I have a, a follow up question after this. But like, where where is that that 
that predictability, right? Like, so for example, I, I don't watch Law and Order. Uh, I, I'm probably one of the few who's never really watched it, but I could imagine, you know, long running shows like this and with a bajillion spinoffs, it has a formula to it, right? Yeah. So, so can you help me understand that aspect? Like, for example, okay, here's a better example, Jonah. I'll let you know a little bit about Chris back in the day. I used to love romantic comedies, all right? But it was, they were so predictable, right? Aside from yeah. like the random like jokes and stuff like <laughs> that, you know? It's like, okay, boy meets girl, blah, 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 fall in love, yeah. big fight, then they can come back together happily ever after. You know, I know that's gonna happen, right? So why are we drawn to that even though it's so predictable? Like that's that's what I'm, I, I don't understand at all. Like you just mentioned with Law and Order, like there's a formula to it. So where where is that mystery? Is it more like just in the details? Yeah, so I, I think that's where the subtleties of art, the craftsmanship really come into play. Um, you know, there's a great study I said in the book, which at first seems very counterintuitive for a book about mystery. It's about why spoilers can actually make good art better. You jacked so my next you, question. So, <laughs> if, so if you if you spoil a good book, it actually people people turn out they enjoy it more, uh, mm. which is very counterintuitive. We live in a time of spoiler alerts. You know, everything mm -hmm. from Game of Thrones to to you know to to the latest hot novel no one wants to know how it ends and yet if you actually look at the research telling someone how it ends actually makes it better and in part i mean there are a couple explanations here one is that we underestimate the suspension of disbelief how good we are mm. at immersing ourselves in imaginary worlds so even if we know how it ends if you're able to pretend that the Lannisters are real, you're also able to, when you're watching it, forget that you know how it ends. Yeah. So we underestimate how effective the brain is at really losing ourselves in the imagination. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that if you know how it ends, you freed up your bandwidth, your mental bandwidth to really notice the nuances and the subtleties. Mm. You're gonna pay attention to details that you may have missed because you were just trying to track the plot. Yeah, um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think, if you look at a lot of the most popular culture out there, I mean, was there ever any doubt that Harry Potter was going to defeat Voldemort? <laughs> right, or like you the read, You read those books and it's profoundly suspenseful. I mean, they are masterpieces in my yeah. humble opinion. But, you know, you're kind of confident that Harry Potter is going to win, that that Gryffindor is going to come out on top. Like, it's, you know, so, so most culture relies on on these predictable plots, whether it's a romantic comedy, they're probably gonna get married at the end or at least kiss against the sunset to thrillers. You know, you know, mm -hmm. Ethan Hunt isn't gonna die in Mission Impossible 8. He's yeah. gonna come close many, many times, but he's not gonna die. Um, and yet the best culture still hooks us with all these mysteries along the way. So, so I think, you know, it becomes what I call an infinite game. Uh, I mm -hmm. had the pleasure of talking to a philosopher and theologian, James Carr, who came up with that term. And for him, an infinite game was any work of culture, uh, whether it's, you know, a sport or the Bible or Shakespeare, that finds a way to serve up lots and lots of little mysteries that we never fully solve. So mm. even if you've read Hamlet and you know it ends poorly, or you know it ends badly, at least for Hamlet, um, or you've read Harry Potter and you know how it ends, you're still able to go back and read from the beginning because there are still so many mysteries, so many interesting ambiguities that remain unsolved. You're still trying to figure out Snape. You're still mm -hmm. trying to figure out, you know, all those other characters. Um, and it's, it's those mysteries that make the work survive. So it's not just the surprise ending. 
it's not just the fact that I, you know, from a certain high level perspective, these works of culture are predictable. Mm-hmm. It's that they still find ways to really hook us with questions along the way. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it's crazy. Like just having this conversation with you, I, I kind of want to just reread your book <laughs> because yeah, there was like when you talked about like that, you know, the study around like spoilers and everything, you know, uh, it's something I thought about. Like I remember just being a kid in the '90s, right, where they're like, I, I remember there was you know people who would be like, "Why are you going to go see Titanic? You know how it ends." You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's just like you know, like that's that's every movie. Like I've I've yeah. seen what like all like dozens of Marvel movies. I know they're gonna win right but who's gonna who's gonna die along the way when Thanos snaps his fingers you know who's who's gonna disappear and it's these 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 little things and and I think you know I think Marvel's starting up I think Marvel's a great example of how because they know there is no mystery in kind of the main plot points the mystery comes from the world it comes from this immersive world and all those subtleties along the way so it's Something very similar happens in Harry Potter, where mm-hmm. even once you know how it ends and the ending, you can argue, was predictable from the beginning, um, you're, you're still pulled along by by the world, by by all these immersive details that 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 remain complicated and confusing. It's a text that kind of exceeds our ability to fully understand it, and that's why we keep coming back to it. Yeah, and there's there's something about it too, like you mentioned, uh, you know, like rereading Harry Potter or rewatching movies or you know whatever, uh, you know, it frees up that that mental bandwidth. And I think that's where we get to, you know, respect, you know, the writers and directors or, you know, whoever it is, because sometimes they, they drop these little hints, right? Like, that's what I like to do. I'm like, wait, did they drop us a hint earlier? Was this guy really that guy or, you know, whatever. And it's, it's kind of fun going back and seeing how they kind of crafted it, right? While still keeping you not really in the know, you know? So there's a, there's a little bit of that mystery there that I, I, I know I personally enjoy, but I don't know if that's like how other people watch these kind of things too. No, I mean, that's, that makes two of us. I'm the same way. <laughs> Once I know how it ends and then my first reread is to go back and kind of watch them lay the track for it. Mm-hmm. And then the third reread of Harry Potter, that's when you're paying attention to the subtleties of Snape and the characters and, and kind of really trying to understand them as people. And you realize what makes it interesting is they're all super complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but but each, each read remains compelling because you still don't understand it. I would say the, you know, when you understand culture is when you can stop returning to it, is when you can safely ignore it for, mm-hmm. you know, the same, the same reasons we talked about prediction errors, because the brain loses interest in things it can fully understand. Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And... And yeah, like I, I wanted to ask you because you brought up, you know, the infinite game. And I think you do an excellent job, you know, in, in just the, the final chapters, because whenever I personally read books, I'm like, okay, what am I taking away from this? Right. So like a lot of it was just understanding why I like what I like, you know, and things like that. But also like you talk about, you know, the infinite game and schools and, and things like that. And I think that there's a lot of like personal value for it. So let's, you know, let's start with the infinite game since, you know, you got to do quite a bit of, you know, research and discussions around that. Like how, how does the infinite game like apply to your life? Like as, as an author, is that, you know, is that part of an infinite game? Like just keep going and enjoying it for, you know, just the learning and the, you know, the writing. No, I I mean, I think as, as James Carson himself, but life is really the ultimate infinite game in the Mm -hmm. sense of, 
it's a game, you know, if, if, if done well, you never win or lose, you just learn to enjoy the process. Mm -hmm. I think that's what infinite games are all about. You, you don't read Harry Potter to somehow vanquish the mysteries of JK Rowling, right? You, you read it because you realize it's, it's never ending and you can keep doing this forever. And that's true of all the best culture, right? They, Mm -hmm. They keep serving us up questions, no matter how many times we return to them for answers. Um, you know, and I think, of course, his background was in theology, and I think that's what drew him to the mm. study of religious texts, which is you have all these people who try to use the Bible or the Old Testament or whatever the texts are looking at is, and they try to mine it for answers, for mm. definitive answers about how we should live our lives, when if you actually look at what, what, what makes these texts so vital, what, what makes these stories last, these sometimes strange and bewildering stories is that they're full of questions. They're full Mm. of mysteries and ambiguities that great scholars will be arguing about until the end. (laughs) Um, So, so in a sense, I, you know, I think it does help one flip uh, our conventional understanding of what we look for in great culture. That it's not, it's not going to teach us how to live. It's not going to solve the universe. It's going to, it's going to teach us how to ask questions, how to enjoy the awe how to enjoy the unknown. And I think that that is that is the great lesson of art, which is, you know, there's always going to be mystery out there. Mm-hmm. The universe is always going to exceed our understanding. And part of being human is learning to savor that um, and to squeeze as much joy from that as possible. Um, so, I, I mean, that's kind of what I took away from, from the infinite game. Um, and, you know, it, it really did help me think about what I love in my favorite mm-hmm. culture. And it is that sense of questioning, but I think it also parlays and, and transitions into kind of what, what, we, what we can do to improve schools. Um, I had the pleasure of spending mm-hmm. a little bit of time at the Noble Academy, which is a very successful charter school, part of the Noble Network in Chicago. And they, you know, they have no admissions requirements. So they take a broad cross-section of Chicago public school students. Um, But within a decade, they've become one of the highest performing public schools in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Their test scores are through the roof, you know, close to 100% kids going to college. Um, You know, they show the largest amount of pupil growth in terms of test scores from ninth grade to 12th grade of any school in the Chicago public school system. And and, and so I went there to try to figure out, well, what are they doing right? And what Mm -hmm. they're doing right is employing a pedagogy, a teaching technique, which known as the Harkness method, uh, which they got from Exeter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's all about giving kids questions. So instead of chalk and talk, instead of a teacher standing at the front of the class and giving kids answers, which they have to memorize, it's all about teaching kids how to ask the right questions. And so the teacher is really much a facilitator. The kids, you give them questions and they talk amongst themselves. They try to problem solve amongst themselves. So in, in, instead of giving them Hamlet and saying, here's what Shakespeare meant, yeah. you say, here's Hamlet, what do you think? And they argue, and I, got, and I had the deep, deep pleasure of watching these kids argue about the US Constitution yeah. and Catcher in the Rye and uh, you know geometry. And it was <laughs> a beautiful thing because you really saw firsthand the power of using mystery to further engagement. That, that if you just give kids answers, we shouldn't be too surprised that they find it boring. Yeah. Because right? it's, it's not a slot machine. It's, it's, it's not baseball. 
it is not law and order. It is not Harry Potter. It's you're giving them stuff, which they just have to memorize. And there's no mystery there. Right. And so they tune it out and they're bored. Whereas if you give them questions, they are profoundly engaged and they find it much more interesting and they learn a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's crazy. It's, uh, just at the time of recording this the other day, I, I spoke with uh, Melinda Wintermore. She just released an awesome book, how to raise kids who aren't assholes. Uh, and and <laughs> oh, part of that, list. I got to read that. Yeah. It's, it's not, awesome. not that my kids are assholes. That's not why I got to read it, but just it sounded really good. Yeah. It, it's a preventative measure as parents <laughs> that we got to do for our kids. <laughs> but one, one of the things uh, she talks about in the book and we were talking about on the podcast was, uh, you know, this, this kind of like, uh, uh, even just for self-development for, for kids and that curiosity and kind of focusing on the effort and not the results. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Because if you're, you know, that's part of the infinite game right there. And that's something Absolutely. that, you know, I, I've tried to implement in my daily life as well, because when I create something, when I, you know, make a YouTube video or write a blog post or self-publish one of my own books, like I can get hooked in on the results of it. Right. And then that could either make me super happy or super bummed out. Right. But when I learn to sit back and just enjoy, you know, the research of it or the creation of it, you know what I mean? Um, is that yeah, that's something James Carr's talked a lot about. I talked a lot about with him was mm. social media, especially turns everything into a zero sum game. Right. So they're winners. Yeah. And, losers. Um, and and even, you know, even amongst, you know, even within ourselves, we're still competing for who's going to get the most likes. Why did this get more likes than that likes? Mm -hmm. And it, it takes away from the, from the process, from just doing it because you love to play. Mm -hmm. um, Cars tells this great story about, he first got the idea for infinite games versus finite games, which is, you mm -hmm. know, a finite game is Twitter. <laughs> a finite game is, you know, is football. A finite game is Monopoly. There's a winner and a loser. When as a kid, he was thinking back to his favorite moments of childhood were playing sandlot baseball with the neighborhood kids. And they would play in this abandoned field in the Chicago suburbs and kids would sub in and out. No one kept score. They were just playing to play, mm -hmm. right? It wasn't about who won and who lost. It was just because they loved playing sandlot baseball. And, and he wanted to write a book kind of defending the pleasure of those games, mm. um, which from an adult perspective is kind of hard to understand, right? Like, why would you play a game that you can't win? Yeah. And yet you look at a child, those are all the best moments of childhood are being lost in our own infinite games, mm. whether it's Sandlot baseball or making Legos, like those are all infinite games and they're mm. deeply, deeply enjoyable. Um, and I think as we grow older, we, forget the pleasure of infinite games it becomes they come to seem too inefficient like we're wasting our time when when in reality it's one it's some of the most noble stuff we can do is lose ourselves in an infinite game yeah yeah it, it's it's nuts because you know as someone who just loves evolutionary psychology like you know they're like competition is kind of just ingrained in us right and as we get older social status is is huge right are are we you know making more money than this guy do we have a better car than that guy or you know whatever it is right and i think that's that's part of it so I, it almost seems like we have to fight a little bit of uh, yeah. of how we we evolve but i'll i'll tell you this like it you know, as somebody who used to struggle a lot with like depression and had like an existential crisis every other day, when I kind of learned to <laughs> like, <me> go. <laughs> yeah, like when I kind of learned to enjoy the process, right? Like yeah. I wake up in the morning and I'm like excited. What's the mystery of the day? Like what's going to happen today? You know, what's my son going to do? What's going to happen at work? What's going to, you know, uh, 
all the all these things. So so here's here's my question for you, Jonah. It might be a little a little personal. So like, do you think researching and studying this has like helped you at all? Like, I'm gonna throw something out there, which I hope doesn't happen and I hope doesn't jinx it. But like, if this book just flops, right? Like, are you gonna be able to get into like the infinite game mindset? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm just curious if all this research has kind of helped you get into that mindset. Uh, I'm gonna do my best. Um, I mean, I think for me, my my writing career has been full of lots of ups and downs. Um, but I think what I've I've learned to do, uh, and it's it's been really hard, but I've learned to enjoy the process. I've I've never enjoyed writing more. Um, in part because now I write just because I love writing. I love exploring ideas, whether it's mystery or slot mm -hmm. machines or kind of car mechanics um, that was one of my favorite set pieces in the book was yeah. talking to this Porsche car mechanic um, about kind of the pleasures of car repair because it's very mysterious um, and, and so yeah I mean I, I I my piece with this book is I had so much fun writing it mm -hmm. um, so I can kind of live with whatever happens to it I'm I'm definitely less concerned with its success or failure just because it was such a fun process it I wish it were an infinite game. I wish I could, uh, you know, just keep writing it. But unfortunately, there are bills. So yeah, right. it had to be finite in some sense. But but it, it was a deeply, deeply pleasurable process. And so I can live with whatever happens next. Um, just to get back to your point about kind of how we're hardwired for competition. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's absolutely true. I think one of the interesting wrinkles of the joys of infinite games that they also show us that we're hardwired for cooperation. Mm. So I think when you look at a lot of our favorite and in, favorite infinite games, they are about cooperation, whether it's Sandlot baseball or just working together to untangle Harry Potter. I think, especially for young readers, a big part of the pleasure of Harry Potter is talking to their friends about it, mm. puzzling out these characters together, arguing over plot points, arguing over what's going to happen next. So I think art also, we think of art and especially the, the analysis of art as this very solitary act, right? It's someone curled up on their couch trying to understand the metaphors and illusions of James Joyce. But I think a lot of the pleasure of art is the fact that it's an infinite game that we share. You sit in that movie theater, you know, one day we'll go back to movie theaters. You sit in that movie theater with a bunch of other strangers in the dark and you're all immersed in the same narrative and the same mysteries and the same surprises. And I think mm -hmm. there's something very, very pleasurable about that. So I think art and infinite game show us that it's not just about competition, but there's also tremendous pleasure in cooperating. In, in kind of thinking and ruminating on these questions together. All right, so so yeah, when, when it comes to, you know, uh, uh, how we can better train our kids, right? Like, I wanna go back to like the Harkness method that you saw and you're a parent, I'm a parent, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, did you take anything away from the school? Like, what are some methods? Like if you had to write like a parenting book right now, what are some ways <laughs> that we could take some of what they did to, you know, uh, uh, help our kids with this curiosity and keep it going and ask them questions like, what can we do at home? I mean, the good news is kids' curiosity is so manifest. It doesn't take much. It's more about just not suppressing it. Mm -hmm. um, I think just encouraging kids to keep asking questions, answering their questions with another question. Mm -hmm. um, I think nothing stifles curiosity faster than the sense of, oh, great, that's the answer. 
Yeah. Um, so, so just trying to keep the conversation going. And I think that's, that's kind of the big frame shift I saw at the Noble Academy was that I think traditional education, it's all about, we have to teach kids these answers. They have to regurgitate it on a test and then we're done. Mm-hmm. Whereas at the Noble Academy, they really see education as this never ending conversation. It really is kind of like an infinite game. It's about how do we keep kids talking about the subject for as long as possible. Mm. And the way you do that is by giving them lots of questions, reminding them of how much we don't know. Um, so I think that's that's kind of giving them one surprise egg after another uh, to return to the initial YouTube hook. Um, and I think that's that's kind of what I I try to do. It's hard because, you know, if kids, they will ask questions and ask questions and ask questions. So at some point you got to get some work done. <laughs> yeah, right. um, but 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 I think to the extent it's possible is reminding them of just how much nobody knows, reminding them that it's not just kids who who, who have questions, who don't have all the answers. It's all of us. And, and that's what makes life so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's weird too, because, you know, I, I see that and like, I, I'm just trying to, you know, raise my son. So he's not an asshole. Right. But, uh, yep. you know, like there, there's number one, right. <laughs> <laughs> like there's, there's books out there. Like I, I read a book, you know, months ago, it was called like the know-it-all society. Right. And, yeah. you know, I look at these things and like, when you look at political polarization and stuff, it's, there's a real lack of like this kind of intellectual humility, right. Just yeah. like, I know this, this is the way it is. And it seems like, you know, we really want the world to be this black and white place. And if there's something I've realized just through interviewing authors on all sorts of topics, it's like, there's so much nuance and in-betweens and that's why we have to keep asking questions so like I'm trying to help my my son do that and but like you said you know there's a point where we got to like you know get work done he's 12 (laughs) now so he's a little bit more independent but I want him to be a thinker and a problem solver Mm -hmm. and all this but here's here's something I don't I don't even know if you mentioned it in the book but like in school grades are important so how are you graded if you just keep asking questions like (laughs) how does that work yeah and and this has been a struggle for the noble academy because obviously it's all about curiosity and mystery and they're very unconventional method and yet at the end of the day they know that their high school students have to take the sat right Mm. they have to play the same game as everyone else if they want to get into a good college. Um, but what they found, and, and this was this was perhaps the most surprising part to me is, you know, one can assume this school, they have higher graduation rates because it's more fun because the kids get to talk amongst themselves in smaller groups. Mm-hmm. And yet they've got some of the highest test scores in all mm-hmm. of Chicago and the Chicago public school system. Their kids do amazing on the ACT and SAT. Hmm. Um, and, I, and when you ask them why, when you ask them how that's possible, their answer is because we teach kids every day how to deal with hard problems. Yeah. So what happens typically for a kid in Chicago public schools, is they take the SAT, they come on a problem they've never seen before and they freeze, they panic, they just skip it. They don't know how to answer it. Yeah. Whereas, you know, it, it, it feels to them like an affront. It's just aversive. It's just scary. And these kids, the Noble Academy, instead they're drawn to it. They're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I've never seen that before. How can Mm -hmm. I figure this out? How can I bring my tools to bear on this novel problem on the SAT? And so that's how they explain why, even though they do the opposite of teaching to the test, their kids do much better on these standardized tests Mm -hmm. than is normal for the Chicago public school system. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it is about teaching your kids how to embrace hard problems, how to be drawn to the complex and ambiguous, to, to kind of model for them that that's the fun stuff, man. Yeah. Uh, but, but at the same time, you know, I, I, it, it obviously does pose 
it makes life more difficult for these teachers. These are some of the hardest working teachers I've ever seen at the Noble Academy. Mm-hmm. Just, just because when you don't have a pre-planned curriculum, you have to plan for everything, right? You got to <laughs> plan for all sorts of spontaneous digressions and kids improvising, and you never know where the conversation is going to end up. So it does take more work, but I think the payoff is huge. And I think the same is true for parenting. It's easier to mm. give your kids answers and pretend we know it's it takes a little bit more time it's more challenging uh it's certainly more exhausting um to to really model curiosity and mystery yeah no i I, absolutely and you know just even thinking about that like you know when yeah i i just you know remember wanting to give my son answers because i think even as parents or even as teachers right and we're in some position of authority we want to seem as though we know it all and you know that helps like build the respect and you know who wants a dad that doesn't know everything you know what i mean (laughs) so so it's easier to just say oh here's why this happens even though i have no clue why it happens but uh but to what you're saying like i i think it, it makes sense and i don't know the the science behind it. I've read some books on like learning and all this other stuff because I consume so many books I just finished like my 230th book of the year and the, the oh main right yeah yeah so the, my trick is audiobooks right so okay. I do so like when I'm walking when I'm working because like during my day job I can just do stuff but but anyways the number one question I get is like are you retaining this information right and and I don't know the exact science behind it but like from what you're kind of discussing with these kids at the Noble Academy is it's almost like some Mr. Miyagi like wax on wax off type of stuff because <laughs> I just constantly have books in my ear I do chapters I'll do like one or two chapters from this book one or two chapters from that book and then next thing I know I'm just having a conversation conversation like for example earlier you and I you know we started talking about BF Skinner I haven't read a book about him in like a year right and so these things just kind of get implemented like in in our brains and they just they're somewhere in there and they come up when we need them so I could see that happening with these tests and those problem solving skills because they're like training that muscle you know what I mean yeah yeah no I, I think that's absolutely right I think you know, the, the, the brain is vaster than we know. We know more than we know, I think is a general rule of <laughs> cognition in the unconscious, but I think it's also about that mindset. It's about a mindset teaching kids how not to be scared by the unknown, to not find it aversive. So they don't end up on Facebook, clicking on links that confirm what they already believe. Um, but, but to teach them like what's interesting and fun is the not knowing mm. um, is is the mystery. And I think that's, that's an invaluable mindset. I think it comes hand in hand with you, you know, you described as intellectual humility, which I think is one of the most important ingredients of critical thinking, if not Mm. the most important ingredient is, is beginning with an understanding that you don't know everything. And Mm. some of your answers are going to turn out to be wrong. Some of the beliefs you most believe may not end up being true. And you know, to let yourself keep asking questions and keep interrogating yourself, keep wondering like, what have I got wrong? What don't I know? And, and, and moving towards that as opposed to confirmation bias, I think is, a, is such a critical skill for critical thinking. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, I think the way we model it too often in schools and as parents is the opposite, is, is we just give kids answers. And it's about who, <laughs> who, who can remember the most answers the answers that we just hand you, um, who can remember them on a test, and then you can forget about it. Um, yeah. And I think that's that's not 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 the best model of education. 
Yeah, no, for sure. I, I I could sit here and talk for hours just about how 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 insane I think that you know school system is like yeah. gauging intelligence on what you can memorize. You know what I mean? I'm like, why is memorization a gauge of intelligence? It makes absolutely no sense. Well, you me. know, it it may have made more sense in the age before Google, um, mm. before yeah. before we could Google any answers. But now I think technology has just increased the returns of curiosity. It's mm it's made us being able to ask the right question even more important. In many respects, answers are the easy part. Anyone can find the answer because we can ask Siri and Google and you know, and we'll get an answer in a millisecond. Google never says, I don't know, even when it doesn't know. But what, what's even more important is learning how to ask the questions and knowing what we don't know and being able to look at those answers that are served up to us and saying, what are they missing? What's incomplete here? What mystery remains? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and learning not just to do that because it's the right thing to do, but learning how to enjoy it. I think that's, that's the key challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and absolutely like that's, you know, something that I, I try to do personally, I try what I try to do with my son is just keep asking questions. Like once you find the answer, why, why is that the answer, right? How do we come to this? Who came up with that? You know, why is this correct? And I, I, I think it helps just kind of look at the world in different ways and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, but Lastly, I, I want to talk about this mechanic guy, and maybe I was interested because I used to work in like car repair, and uh, oh, wow. yeah, yeah, <laughs> you have this great story about this mechanic. But for example, I remember because I was young; it was one of my first jobs working at this dealership in the service department. I remember going to these uh, these mechanics, and they'd be working on a, a car for days right for days not knowing what's wrong trying everything using you know the computers like you mentioned it in the book and all that i remember like asking him like i just went around i was curious i'm like i'm like do you like have fun doing this and you know and there's this insane sense of accomplishment when you when you finish it when you figure out that puzzle and you talk about that uh, in the book. So without spoiling the book, because everybody needs to go buy it when it comes out. But can you talk a little bit about this, this Porsche mechanic who's kind sure. of like just forever curious and he, yeah. he finds joy in this? Yeah, it's his, uh, his name is Jeff Hogland. He's he's uh, <laughs> just one of the most interesting dudes you'll ever meet. Uh, and he runs a, in, in the Porsche aficionado community, it's pretty famous because he's known for solving Porsches can be finicky cars, especially older Porsches. Mm-hmm. And he's known for solving some of the hardest Porsche problems. And so he told me this great story about one day he got in, you know, someone brought in a Porsche and the engine wouldn't turn off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, this, this wasn't an old 911. This was a new 911. Mm-hmm. It was a convertible, you know, $120,000 car and the engine wouldn't turn off. And he's like, I've never seen that happen before. You turn the ignition, take out the key and it would just keep humming. Yeah. Um, and so you basically have to choke it. You literally have to open the hood up. Sorry, not the hood, but open the trunk up because it's a push yeah. and, and starve it of oxygen. It's the only way you can get the engine to turn off. And so he spent months trying to figure this out. And he uses the reason he tells the story, the reason he loves this Porsche of one turn off uh, story so much is because it illustrates some of the limits of technology and the way technology has transformed mm-hmm. car repair. So in the old days, and by old days, I mean 20 years ago, someone would bring in a car to be making a funny noise and it'd be a puzzle. Uh, it'd be a mystery. The mechanic would have to figure it out, use deductive reasoning, look at all the parts, maybe spend a couple hours on it, and they'd have to diagnose it themselves and solve it. 
in the 21st century, now you just plug in a dongle and the car mm -hmm. computer will tell you what it thinks is wrong. But the reason this Porsche was so fascinating to Jeff is because you plug in the dongle and the Porsche thinks everything's going great. This 911, <laughs> Porsche never programmed in an error code for an engine that wouldn't turn off because it just, who could imagine that happening? So he was really flying blind and it, and it becomes this allegory the way Jeff tells it for the limits of computer diagnostics more generally. Because they may be able to diagnose the simple stuff, but the hard problems, those wicked problems, the computers often aren't helpful and they often get it wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and what's even worse is, is the way the human mechanics interact with these computer diagnostics. So the computers spit out these answers. And if you don't interrogate them, you may end up fixing something that mm -hmm. isn't broken or fixing just part of the problem. So you really have to treat these computer diagnostics not as the gospel, not as the final answer, but as a provisional answer, as yet another clue. And you really have to keep pursuing. You have to stay curious. You have yeah. to stay intellectually modest, uh, you know, intellectually humble. Um, and, and you've got to keep asking questions. And so I don't want to give away the answer of how Jeff finally solved this Porsche that yeah. went off after three months, but it's because he kept asking questions and refused to give up. In a sense, he treated the broken car as an infinite game. Fortunately, yeah. it became a finite game because he could fix the car. Yeah. But, um, but, but, you know, for me, it became an interesting way of looking at the way we interact with technology and how that is distorting our sense of mystery and curiosity. And I think the internet is amazing. Google's amazing. Social media can be amazing. Uh, it can expose us to new ideas and strange new questions and help us form connections that we've never thought about before. Mm -hmm. But, but that, that can only happen when you treat the answers served up by the internet, served up by all these screens we have in our pockets and on our desks and that follow us around, when you treat them as provisional in a first step, mm -hmm. uh, when you don't treat them as the end, but just yeah. one more beginning. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's one of the reasons I, I love the story. Like uh, I, I was talking to somebody from MIT who wrote a book on uh, AI and robots and stuff like that. And like, maybe I'm an optimist, but this is one of the reasons why I don't think like anytime soon, you know, the, the machines are going to take over mm -hmm. and replace all of us and things like that, because they they have a limited amount. And like, like you said, like with this, this story about the Porsche, like they're only programmed to look for what they can look for, right? These weird... Yeah things that happen and when and when people get this book and find out what the solution like when i got to that i'm like yeah there's no way there is no way the computer would have figured that out right yeah. but uh uh yeah it's it's one of those things where i think that's just a lesson that we all need since we're becoming more reliant on technology and all that um especially like you know with the way algorithms can be biased or keep you you know for the motives of the social media platform and all this like you're not always getting objective information either you know what i mean like google google and the way it stores cookies is crafted towards you and what you look up right so you yeah. you can't even guarantee that you're already always finding the correct answer or just an answer that google thinks that you want to hear you know what i mean no absolutely i mean the answers that are served up have their own biases and assumptions built in, whether it's a car diagnostic or Google. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's why we got to keep asking questions. Um, yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's no solution other than to keep asking questions and not treat them as the answer yeah. or the final answer. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and speaking of keep asking questions, uh, I only got one more question for you, <laughs> but uh, I, fun. thank I, you. 
<laughs> I want to know. I want to know, like, and I don't know if we need to bring uh, uh, the Porsche dude on, but like, I, I like when 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 I found out that he worked on this one problem for months, right? Like, I'm curious what we can learn from this, like the how to keep going, not give up, and keep pushing forward, right? Like whether it's like fixing something around the house or, you know, working on a work problem, like, cause sometimes you just want to like throw your computer out the window or somebody would want to like just bash that car with a crowbar or whatever. Right. Yeah. Like, is there anything that you learn from this dude of like, how do we keep going and look at it as a game and a, a mystery and a puzzle to be solved rather than just giving it up and saying, screw this. Oh, I mean, Jeff's an inspiration for that exact reason. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it does come back to the infinite game mindset. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when I asked Jeff why he kept persisting with this Porsche, because he couldn't even build a guy anymore. Cause you know, he, how, yeah. how much can you bill a customer for a problem <laughs> you can't solve? So at this point he was just burning hours, right? He was losing money on this car that he had to store for months and that he couldn't even charge money for. Um, but, but he just couldn't give it up. And when I asked Jeff, his answer was, I, you know, I always wanted to be like Kobe. And he talked about how what drove uh, Kobe Bryant was the process, not just the wins and losses. This guy was insanely competitive, obviously, but that he 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 was also playing this internal game where he's wanted to keep getting better and perfecting mm. his game. And so within this very finite game of basketball, Kobe Bryant, and, and I'm paraphrasing Jeff here, he didn't use the words infinite game, but Kobe Bryant found the infinite game of self-improvement. Mm. And that's what really drove him in parallel. And I think for Jeff, he, he sees Kobe as a model. Um, and I think he learned to enjoy the infinite game of car repair as well, where it wasn't just about getting more customers, wasn't just about getting more billing hours, wasn't just about getting more money or, you know, getting us second car repair business. It was, he just loves the process of figuring out what's wrong with these cars. Um, mm -hmm. I think for me as a writer, that was very inspiring. Yeah. Um, you know, you asked about like, how I'll deal with this book if it doesn't sell a million copies and it won't. Um, and, and for me, that's been the struggle as a writer is to just learn to enjoy the process, mm -hmm. not, not the end result, which may or may not happen. Um, but, but just to enjoy the act of writing, just to enjoy the sheer pleasure of getting to ask questions. And, and for me as a writer, it's really about, you know, I, I play with words as a means of thinking. Um, mm -hmm as a means of, of kind of forcing my brain to really think through problems, um, not to find some clear answer at the end, but just for the pleasure itself of, of getting, to, getting to think about the unknown. Um, and I think that, that, that was really what inspired me about Jeff was, you know, I can't think of another mechanic who would spend three months right. on, on a car that wouldn't turn off. Um, but, but for me, it really is a model for, not just how to write, but how to live. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I, I think that's just one of the biggest life lessons to, uh, aside from just enjoying the process, but like the learning that we get to do along the way, like, right, like five years from now, if Jeff has a car that won't turn off, maybe it's not the same problem, but at least he could check that first. You know what I mean? And, you know, just real quick, like, uh, 
you know, going back to my own addiction recovery, I tell people like when people are like, Chris, like you are a chronic relapse or you kept going back, like, how'd you finally do it? I'm like, I learned from all the things that didn't work. You know what I mean? And I think, I think that's very valuable in and of itself. And that's how it kind of keeps me pushing forward because you learn from your mistakes. And even with like a book launch, like, right. Like it's like, okay, well, was it, you know, the marketing or was it the way I wrote this or was it, you know, how I structured the chapters and you kind of get to like be a little scientist and play around with it and experiment and test out new things. And, you know, that's what Jeff does with cars. So, you know, we get to learn from all that and grow and become mm -hmm. resilient and all that fun stuff. No, I mean, I mean, talking to James Carse, he's the theologian philosopher who came up with the idea of infinite games or coined the term. Um, I mean, he talks, he does connect in his writing to the notion of original sin, to the notion of mm. humans are defined by our imperfections. We're defined by what we don't know. We're defined by our limitations. Um, and it's easy to forget because we like to think of ourselves as these Promethean beings who can solve the universe, but, <laughs> but really the act of being human is learning to live with what we don't know and may never will, is learning to live with the fact that we will always make mistakes, mm -hmm. um, that, that even our wins are tangled up with losses. Um, and, you know, to me, that's part of the model of what we can learn from the pleasure of mystery is that, thankfully, our consolation is that even though we'll never know everything, We've got this amazing kind of circuitry that allows us to enjoy not knowing. Yeah. Um, so we do get pleasures from answers. We do get pleasure from figuring stuff out, from eventually solving that Porsche. But we've also been wired to get tremendous pleasure in the act of not being able to solve it in, in the process. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so I guess my big hope for the book is, is to just remind people that, that they can also enjoy the process, the act of not knowing, even in this century, this age, when we're surrounded by devices that keep giving us answers um, yeah. to learn to enjoy the questions. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think that's, you know, that's a, a great way to end this thing because that's exactly what I loved about the book. It was, you know, especially with, uh, you know, Jeff's story towards the end, it's like, it reminded me, you know, like, yep, yep, I need to enjoy the process and the problem solving and all that. But uh, yeah, we're, we're recording this, you know, in July and the book comes out in a few weeks. So do me a favor, Jonah, where, when does the book come out? Where can people get a copy? And if they want to keep up with you and other projects you're working on and your infinite game, where can they find you? Uh, the book comes out August 17th, uh, 2021. It, it's available wherever books are sold. Um, uh, and they can find me, keep up with me on uh, my um, infrequently updated blog on jonahlayer.com. Cool. Awesome, man. Well, I wish you best of luck with the launch. Thank and I'm, I'm sure it's so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll, we'll do this again sometime, but awesome. yeah, man, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks. Thank you. All right, everybody. That was my conversation with Jonah Lehrer about his brand new book, Mystery, which actually dropped today. We recorded this a few weeks ago, but yeah, it is such a great book. And if any of you are interested in anything that we're talking about or just learning why we enjoy mystery so much and, and like we were talking about, like how it can help benefit us and keep us moving forward and, you know, succeed in different projects or at work or whatever, like I really, really recommend that you check this book out. So huge thanks to Jonah for coming on. I will link uh, his book down in the description below. He's not a huge social media guy, so so go check out his book. And uh, yeah, when he does update his blog, you know, and stuff like that. But uh, super cool guy. 
And yeah, I'm gonna try to have him back on for uh, another conversation about uh, you know his his past experience with writing and all that kind of stuff. Um, with what happened when like you know uh, the writing community kind of came after him and what he's learned and grown from and all that. So so stay tuned because uh, yeah gonna he'll probably be back but yeah uh anyways uh while you're down in the description make sure you're following me over on instagram and twitter at the rewired soul and if you are new here make sure you subscribe or follow the podcast wherever you're listening apple spotify whatever uh if it is on apple do your boy a favor leave a rating leave a review and no matter where you're listening be sure to share this episode if you thought it was interesting because the algorithms love that stuff uh, when you engage with the podcast by following it, subscribing, sharing, and it helps us reach a larger audience. So make sure uh, that you do that. And there are some ways to support the podcast down below for anybody who is interested. You can get some of my books that I've written on mental health at therewiredsoul.com. You can become a patron. And there's also a link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. It's a service that I've personally used. It's affordable. You can do it from the comfort of your own home. It's, it's amazing, all right? So check out that link for BetterHelp Online Therapy, all right? But anyways, huge, huge thanks uh, again to Jonah for coming on. And thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And... Again, I think I mentioned this yesterday, but there are more book launches coming this week, some episodes I've already recorded. So tomorrow, we're going to be chatting with Lee McIntyre about how you talk to a science denier, which is pretty relevant, seeing as how a lot of people still won't get vaccinated. So make sure you tune in tomorrow. All right. So uh, yeah, and if you don't want to miss it, make sure you follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. All right. But have an amazing, amazing rest of your day, and I'll see you next time.